We are starting a new sermon series today. I know we've been doing the gifts in the body for a while. Please understand that's not going to go away. The purpose of walking through all of that as meticulously as we did so that everybody would be well informed was not so that it could just pass away in a sermon archive somewhere. Spiritual gifts are biblical. A lot of times people stay away from them because they're abused. Some people don't want anything to do with them because they don't know what to make of them. So that's why we spent the time doing what we did. And so we will always have these available. We will always encourage people who haven't filled them out to do so. We have the answer sheets back there. And if you have any questions whatsoever, come talk with me about that. Make an appointment, send me an email, text, it doesn't matter. But it's vitally, 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 vitally important. And we will not be moving on from that. There's not going to be a graduation from spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts have been given to the body until the rapture of the church. I plan on using them until that happens. So it's very, very important for us to understand. We are starting a new series today called Reclaiming Repentance. This is going to be different from some things that we've done before because we are going to focus solely on one word, actually two words, repent and repentance. Now, the reason why this is going to be different is because I'm actually going to ask you to participate with me. You're going to notice at the end of the aisle, you're going to have some pages, and I plan on trying to do this every week, some pages with our main text of Scripture that has been lined out, and I've actually given you enough space. If you've worked with us before, you've, you've, you've worked through a passage of Scripture before, you've received something like this before, you will see that. Now, I understand not all of you want to do that, not all of you want to mark it up, I get that. I actually have, stole it from the kitchen, uh, a pen caddy for anybody that would like a pen uh, and, and, and would benefit from that to mark this up. But I want to start encouraging you to mark up the text because after we're done with this series, we're going to be getting into Ephesians. Scott, could you be the gopher? Great. If anybody needs a pen, there you go. Raise your hand. Scott will get it to you. Make sure it's a real nice Grace Bible Church pen, too. Yeah, right's blue. It's okay. But we want to make sure that everybody can get into marking the text. My conviction is there's not one Christian that should be spending less time in the Bible. And if we're going to be spending more time in the Bible, we need to begin marking it up. I shared this with you a while back. I'm reading a book right now called A Primer on Biblical Literacy. And it's making the case for the fact that every believer in Christ needs to be in their Bibles constantly and to have an intelligent feel of it the reason is is because some people that were polled 13 percent, actually said that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife that's a problem for me Christians it's a problem for me another statistic was 88 percent of Christians that were polled cannot name you the four gospels yeah that's where a lot of people are church wise so that's where our churches have become I would use the word anemic, but that's too strong. And if what I, my concern is not for other churches, not my monkeys, not my circus, but my concern is for Grace Bible Church, that we should be in the text. And so I'm going to challenge you with some theological ideas and hopefully at least give you some principles about how do you work through these things for yourself. And the reason is, is because we should be working through these things for ourselves. We should do that. So what is the issue we've got going on? with reclaiming repentance. Now I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm actually going to encourage you to get on your phone and to download this app. It's called Literal Word. It's free. You can either find it in the Google Play Store or the Apple Store. 
Again, if you need one of those pages to mark out, they will be at the end. If you see a row that might not have anybody there, you can just get up and grab them real quick. That's fine if you want those pages. Not everybody does, I understand. But this app right here is incredibly helpful. It is the New American Standard Bible 1995 edition. It's very easy to highlight, copy, uh, make little notes if you need to, and also to put your finger on a word and have a lexicon pop up so you don't have to go buy one that will help give you understanding and meaning for words. So I encourage you, literal word, excellent free app, very helpful, okay? Any more pens? Do we need more pens? There we go. I love it, man. Everybody's involved. I know we're getting, we're getting a little slow started. It's okay. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. You have a notes page in your handout. Or maybe you've got a spare piece of paper, or maybe you just want to write it at the top of what I've given you uh, as far as the scripture passage to mark up. I don't know how long this is going to take, but I'm not in any hurry, okay? I want you to take your notes page and write out a definition of repentance, your definition of repentance. When you hear the word repentance, what does it mean? Take a moment. I'm going to give you a moment to do that. What is the definition of repentance? I know what some of you are saying. I didn't come to church this morning to do this. You're here. Yes, you did. So I say. Definition of repentance. Give you just a few more seconds. Now let's take a look at 2 Timothy 3. And I want to give you the base rationale for why we're doing what we're doing. Verse 16. All Scripture. See that word all? Pretty important. All Scripture is inspired by God. Now, you guys know this, and I'm not trying to frown on anything, but I'm not a big fan of the NIV translation just because of some of the mistakes that it's made. But they got this one right. Because if you have an NIV, what you read is, all Scripture is God-breathed. That is the literal rendering of that word, theophanustos. It means that God is actually breathed it out. It came right out of Him, and it saturates Every piece of scripture, beginning to end, first word in Genesis to the end of Revelation. Does not matter. All of it is equally inspired beginning to end. One testament does not take precedence over another. That's important to understand. Okay? All scripture is God-breathed, inspired by God. And notice what it does. It is profitable. It's going to benefit you. It's useful. For teaching, number one, that's instruction, but also, number two, for reproof. It's meant to convict your heart. It's meant to say, I might not have been thinking about this the way that I need to, so something's got to change, because God's Word says one thing, and how I invest my time, what I do, the choices I make, say another. So now there's automatically dissonance in those two points. Well, the goal of the Word of God is to bring you in harmony with what He has revealed. 
He says here not only for reproof, but it's also for correction, getting you in alignment, to set you straight. Now, you parents know what that's like because you're often looking for opportunities to set your kids straight when they get out of line. Guess what? God is the perfect father, and he gets us straight. He sets us straight through his word. But the last one is also equally important for training in righteousness. In other words, it's trying to put us in a brand new forward direction. So it all comes from teaching us. And then there are three things that are supposed to pop out of that teaching. Reproof, correction, and training us. And it all starts with how you think, every bit of it. So thinking has to be corrected. Mind has to be renewed. That only comes from the Word of God being ingested so that the indwelling Holy Spirit has got a lot of firewood to work with and to ignite your fire. Some of you came in here and the wood is wet. That's okay. Bible study is to correct that, to get that rooted out, to cause a realization and subsequent confession of sin. That's what God's Word is supposed to do. But then it moves us on a little bit more. Verse 17 So that, here's the reason, the man or woman, either one, of God may be adequate, may be qualified, may be well fitted to perform a function, equipped for every good work, because that's what God has called us to. He has called believers in Christ not to sit and soak. He has called them to soak it in, yeah, but to put it out as well. We are to be people who are doing, not just receiving. Our consumer mentality in our culture has done a lot to kill churches. And that is not good. This is not McChurch. Okay? So you can't just order it the way that you want it and drive around and get it and go off and do whatever you want with it. God does not allow that mentality to translate here. We have to be spending adequate time in the Word of God. At least giving it the benefit of the doubt and allowing space for it to be teaching our hearts and our minds. Why? Because God has something for every single one of us to do. And the only way that we get equipped for it is by the word of God teaching us how to go. Make sense? Great. Some of you are wishing I was done. I'm not. So when you come across some research that you want to do or some background that you've come from, and you stumble upon something and you go, wait a second, is this how I should understand this? Let me give you an example. This is from a book called The Teaching of the Catholic Church. It was released in 1967, kind of out of date, but the practice is not. This is a Catholic sacrament. The fourth sacrament is penance, of which, as it were, the matter consists of the actions of the penitent, which are in three parts. Three parts. Everybody see that? Okay, now let's watch this. The first, uh uh-oh, come on, pen, do your thing. Nope, go back, pen. All right, I hate the pen. (laughs) The first of these is contrition of heart, okay? Which consists of, equals, sorrow for sin committed and the intention not to sin in the future. How's that going to go? Keeps you coming back, doesn't it? Now watch this. 
The second is oral confession, whereby the sinner confesses to the priest all the sins he remembers in their entirety. The third, some of you are having flashbacks right now, it's okay. The third is, now watch this, because this is dangerous. We could spend a lot of time on this quote. My goal is not to pick apart the Catholic Church, okay? My goal is to show you how there could be some inconsistency that's crept into how we understand the Bible. The third is satisfaction for sins according to the judgment of the priest. Now, immediately you could probably look at that and think, well, didn't Jesus die for sins? And we would say yes. So what would we do in this situation? Well, we do that. That's what we would do, okay? Which is mainly achieved by prayer, fasting, and alms deeds. Now, ain't nobody got time for that because Jesus already took care of it, okay? But now I want to show you something interesting because, again, that's a Catholic perspective. They believe what they believe. Fine. They're being upfront about it. They're letting us know we're, we're, we're more informed. But here's my concern. This is from a book called Systematic Theology by a man named Wayne Grudem. This is the most used theological textbook for systematic theology classes in all of America's seminaries and partially around the world. It has sold ridiculous amounts of copies. It's unbelievable. He says repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Stew on that for a second. Because two questions present themselves. The first one is, is there any difference in these two explanations? That's what strikes me. A Catholic believes this about penance. And then I turn to what's considered the foremost authority on how I should understand theology. And I know you're like, well, I'm not even worried about that. You should be. You should be concerned about that greatly. How we think about God is the greatest thing about us, A.W. Tozer said. So we need to be thinking about God correctly. And we need to handle his word correctly. This is part and parcel of it. Are there any differences? Well, let's look at them side by side. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, renouncing of it, a sincere commitment to forsake it, okay? The first of these is contrition of heart, which consists of a sorrow for sin, okay? So we got this, right? And the intention not to sin in the future, which seems to align pretty well here. Don't forget that you got to be sincere, only the sincerest in the pumpkin patch will see the great pumpkin, right? No. According to this, Catholic penance and Protestant repentance are the same. Is that true? Hold your answer. Here's the second question it brings up. Is this what the words repent and repentance mean? That's a good question to ask. Because here's what a lot of people do. They read their Bibles or they want to learn more about God and they immediately grab... What? Anybody know? Here's the sad thing about it. Oftentimes it's not the Bible. Not allowing for Scripture to translate Scripture. Not having good study tools in order to dig into a text and just say, let's just let the context tell me what it means. We grab a commentary. We find out who that person is on the radio. We download a podcast. We're searching websites. Well, I listen to this person preach on it and they'll tell me what it believes or what it means or how I should think or where this should go, or what I should do. 
We've turned too many celebrity pastors and preachers and theologians into swamis for our life. And we can't do that because then we neglect the personal responsibility to know God personally. And even because we're, pick, we're picking on this word repentance, as we should, even that matters. We can't even afford to let that go. The first word, repent, is a verb. Metanoeo is what it is. It occurs 32 times in the New Testament. What you have in the main uh, lexicon that people use, this is normally called BDAG. If I throw that out there, you'll know what it is. To change one's mind. But then it has a second definition that follows up behind it. To feel remorse, repent, which is kind of funny to me because that's what the word is. But remember, we're dealing with Greek to understand it, not English for English. And to be converted. The question is, is does the text defend that? The one that comes with your literal word app says to change one's mind or purpose, hence to repent. Now, the other word we're concerned about is repentance. The noun is metanoia. It occurs 22 times in the Bible. We find in BDAG here, a change of mind, and that's the only thing it gives. That's it. The next one is, for your literal word app, an afterthought, change of mind, repentance. Now, the makeup of the word actually deals with meta, which is the idea of meaning after, and nous, which has the idea of mind or understanding, or even some situations could say, and I meant to put this in here, so I'll do it now, to think. How we think about something, after, think, after, mind, after, understanding, or to put it together where we would understand it in English, to think after, to have an afterthought about something, to understand afterwards. So notice, no, the previous explanations that we receive from our Catholic friend and our Protestant friend do not match the definitions given in lexicons. You automatically have a problem. Which one's right? Neither explanation mentions a change of mind at all. And then we ask the classic word, what happened, right? How in the world does this happen to where you've got smart, well-educated, well-read, well-decorated, scholarly people who are going to tell you that this word means this, and then you go over to where you want to research the word, and all you did was pull up literal app, you found the word repent, you put your finger on there, popped up at the bottom and told you exactly what it was, and you go, wait a second. This doesn't match. So now how should we think about this? You do a little bit of digging, you find something very interesting. This is by a man named Louis Burkhoff. He too wrote a systematic theology years and years ago. Now I will go ahead and tell you this. By and large, I'm going to have a major disagreement with him on some of the finer points of theology about how to handle the Bible. But as far as things like the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, that God is the creator of all things, resurrection, all that goes... He, he's going to be dead on, spot on. And he brings this out, and it's very important for us to see what has happened. So he pinpoints the problem, and it comes from when the Bible was translated from Greek into Latin. Now, I'm not going to say that. Move, move on. Sad to say, the church gradually lost sight of the original meaning of metanoia. Pay attention. I know this is a long quote, but stick with me here, okay? That's why I told you I had coffee today. In Latin theology, I can't even say this guy's name, Lactantius, I guess, rendered it recipicentia. That's Latin. Okay, hold on. A becoming wise again. Now pause. Does that sound like the lexicons 
or our theological friends. Sounds like the lexicons, okay? Becoming wise again, as if the word were derived from meta and anoia, and denoted a return from madness or folly. It's a rethinking of something. It's to think again about something. The majority of Latin writers, bad word, however, preferred to render it poiententia, a word that denotes sorrow and regret, which follows when one has made a mistake or has committed an error of any kind. Does everybody see what the problem is there? Here's what the word means. If we're going to move it from one language to another, here's the proper word. Yeah, that sounds good, but I think we like this one better. Here's the second part of the quote. This word passed into the Vulgate. What is the Vulgate? It is the Latin translation of the Greek scriptures, okay? As a rendering of metanoia. That's where we got the word from. And under the influence of the Vulgate, the English translators rendered the Greek word by repentance. That's how we got the English for it. Thus stressing the emotional element and making metanoia equivalent to metamelia, which that means to have remorse about something. So this word has been taken from the Greek and translated in such a way because it went through Latin in order to have this incredible, heavy, emotional element that is attached to it, of which the Greek would not represent it because there's already a word for that, okay? Now, if you need cure for insomnia, play this tonight, got it? In some cases, deterioration went even further. Well, how did that happen, Mr. Burkhoff? The Roman Catholic Church externalized the idea of repentance in its sacrament of penance so that the metanoiaite of the Greek Testament, which we're going to see in Matthew 3, 2, became poenentium agate to do penance in the Latin version. Look at your definition of repentance. Does your definition of repentance contain any emotional element to it whatsoever? That's for you to answer for your own. But if it does, it's for one of two reasons. Well, actually, it's, it's for one reason. Because we've heard it that way. Because it's been described or explained that way. And we might not be readily recognizing the historical problems that came up as a road bump. So, as believers in Jesus Christ, and as those who uphold the authority of the word, how do we make sense of this issue? How do we come to a confident conclusion about the meaning and nature of repentance? And here's what we have to do. We have to sit down with the scriptures. We have to read. We have to spend time. We actually need to study. So here we go. We're going to deal with repent and repentance in the gospels. Now, Side note, I originally thought that this was only going to be a two-week sermon series. <laughs> I was way wrong. So, here we go. You've got that paper in front of you. If you want to turn there in your Bible, it's Matthew chapter 3, either one. If you want to mark, I encourage you to have your pens out, follow with me. And I'm not just going to go through the text, but I want to begin to explain to you why I mark up the text the way that I do. I'm not saying that I have a corner on the market of how to mark up the text. There's probably many of you out there that do it better or have a better system than I do. And that's fine. It's totally fine. My hopes is that you're in the text. My hopes is that your Bible is open, your pen is out, you're either taking notes, but you're involved in what God is wanting to show you. 
So the very first thing that we do before we ever put pen to paper is we pray. And we pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit because he's the one who wrote the text. Let's do that quickly. God, we thank you for the Bible. And we pray, Lord, that you would please bring it to our understanding, enlighten our hearts and minds, that we be changed people, more knowledgeable, more understanding, and more convicted of living out evangelism and discipleship. For your name's sake, we pray it. Amen. All right. Now, in the days of John the Baptist, okay? John the Baptist came. This automatically gives you a time marker. Now, I draw a little clock, okay? I draw a little four o'clock hands there. I don't know why, but that's just what I do. And I use that to either mark a time period in history of which I need to have a starting point for my thinking, or I mark it there in order to detail the fact that prophecy is being unfolded, okay? Now, in those days, John the Baptist came, and here's what he's doing. He's preaching in the wilderness, that is his location, of Judea. Now, if you think of your map real quick, and if you want to have a cheat sheet, you look to the back of your Bible, where is Judea located in the, in the Middle East? Anybody remember? It's in the south. Okay, so if you remember, if you're looking there, I'm going to do a backwards map here. You ready? Here we go. I have to think really hard about this. So Egypt's down here. Mediterranean Sea is right here. Israel is all located along here. Here's the Arabian Desert. Over here is going to be the Persian Gulf and what we would know in biblically speaking is Babylon. Saudi Arabia is over here, okay? This is going to be the Fertile Crescent because of the way the Euphrates River runs. We're going to have up here is going to be the Sea of Galilee. The northern area is known as Galilee. You're going to have the Jordan River that runs all the way down into the Dead Sea or what's considered the Salt Sea down at the bottom there. In the middle, you're going to have Samaria. If you remember, Jews wanted to avoid Samaria at all costs because they were considered half-breeds, a very derogatory term that was given to them, but they hated them because it was Jew and Gentile mix. But down at the bottom, you've got Judea, and Judea is where places like Bethlehem and Jerusalem were located. It pays for us to know the map in the back of our Bible. So what I do in that case, just for quick reference sake, is when I'm going through and I see he was preaching in the wilderness of Judea, I write an S there for south, just so I know where it's at. Now we're talking about the southern region down there, and my mind has got a basic geography of what's going on. And here is the content of his message. Here's our word. Repent. For, see for, that is our explanation. It's our causal conjunction. So what I do is I give it a real heavy underline. I throw down an arrow and I kick it back. And the reason is, is because whatever I was just told really matters a lot in how I move forward. Here's this, here's the explanation. Repent for, why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that's a very different message than believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But everything about what John's ministry is and what he was doing in this period of time is what makes that different. So now watch how we move forward. What's it start with? For, what do you do there? Heavy underline? And you give it a little arrow kickback. Why? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's important. It's John the Baptist's time that he shows up on the scene. He's preaching in the wilderness of Judea. We know that that's in the south. And look what it says. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah. Pause. Automatically, you know that you have an Old Testament reference. Now, thankfully, in most of our Bibles, you will have marginal notes. Your marginal notes are there to help you. And 95% of the time, they do. 
that 5% they give you one word that occurred somebody or somewhere that you go to research it because you really want to know something about that passage and you find it's, it's, it's mentioning some word that, that corresponds that you're like, I don't even know how this fits. Chances are it doesn't. That's okay. The middle part was put there by translators and people. But 95% of the time, they're connecting some things together for you. Now, if you look in the margin of your Bible, if you turn there in your scriptures, and if you've got something there that's located next to that, what do you find? What is this reference when it talks about one referred to by Isaiah, the prophet, when he said, and then right there you should have a letter of some sort. What is it? If you're bored, it's because you're not participating. What's it say? Isaiah 40, verse 3. Bing, bing, bing. Now hold on to that for just a second. Let's see what this passage says. We'll move on. Now, if the New American Standard has given you all caps in this situation, it's because it's a quotation of Old Testament verses. Here's what it says. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Pause. Does that correspond with what we just saw? Everybody remember the previous verse? The wilderness of where? Judea. It's where is it at? In the what? In the south. So we know that, okay? There's a good correspondence here. Notice it says here, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. That sounds like a good message. Awesome. Now here's the question. What does Isaiah 40 verse 3 say? So we would turn there. And here's what it says. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the... Not just Lord. It's all caps. Yahweh. And what does Yahweh mean? The self-existing one. He needs nothing to be who he is. And notice where it happens. In the wilderness. Clear the way for Yahweh. Now pause for a second. You compare Isaiah 40 verse 3 with what you're seeing here going on in Matthew chapter 3 verse 3. And what you just have is John the Baptist has just equated Jesus Christ with the creator himself. Everybody see that? Jesus Christ is Yahweh. So let's not make any any bones about that. That's just clear, sound, good theology. He knows that God in the flesh is coming. Notice what it says. Make smooth, or we would see make straight in what we were looking at earlier. In the desert, a highway for our God. Not only is he the creator, the self-existent one, he is God, period. Jesus Christ is the I am, Yahweh, and he is the Elohim. He is God. So now we go back to Matthew 3, 4 in our papers. Now, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Why Matthew includes that, I'll be honest with you, I don't know. But he was a pretty eccentric guy. He was not the norm in the culture. He lived a pretty radical life, and it was solely devoted to promoting Jesus Christ in his coming. That was his whole mission. His whole mission was to be the herald of the coming Messiah. Exciting times of the first century. It says here, them... Jerusalem was going out to him. How does a whole city get up and move? Is that what it's saying? No, we understand it's the people. Where's Jerusalem located? The south. Jerusalem is the city. The region is Judea. Everybody see that? Okay. Then Jerusalem was going out to him. And all Judea, there's the region, and all the district around the Jordan. All around the Jordan. Now, where's the Jordan? Remember? Remember? Sea of Galilee. Jordan River goes down there along Samaria in the middle. Empties out into the dead or the salt sea at the bottom. 
So all the region around that area, everybody's coming out, everybody's coming from Jerusalem, the whole province of Judea. This is widespread stuff. People are coming out to see this weird guy in the middle of nowhere who eats a strange diet. He was keto before it was a thing. Okay? So notice this. He's out there involved in this. And they were, now watch this, being baptized by him. You do a word search on baptism. Baptizmo is the Greek word. Get out your literal word. Put your finger in there. You're going to find out it's the idea to immerse or to dunk someone under the water. It's not a sprinkling thing. I love you sprinklers, but that's just not what the word means. They were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. So that tells you they were at least at the mouth that opened up into the Salt Sea where this geography was located. And that's probably why the whole region was coming out there because it's local. Let's go see the weirdo. It's local, right? So notice, as they, ooh, I love this part, confess their sin. We're doing a baptism in August. Sign up for it. It'll be fun. We're not going to do it like this, but that's what they did back then. They're confessing their sins. Now pause. What was John's message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Our word under consideration is repentance. That's what we're focused in on. But we're reading the context to see if it helps us understand the meaning. Well, now you've got, here's his message that he's out there yelling at everybody, right? The preachers in the first century too. And here they come. And what he's doing with them is going to constitute the whole that gives us an understanding of what repentance is. So number one, they're being baptized here. And what they're doing as they're baptized, they're confessing their sins. They're coming out of the water and they're telling everyone their wrongdoings. Now for us, that's scandalous. For them, it's getting junk out of the way. And there's a reason for it. We're going to see it. Now, here's what's interesting because the scene kind of changes. How do we know that? Double underline. But... And usually when you're dealing with that, you're dealing with a 180 degree turn in some way, okay? But when he saw the many Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, now even these guys are coming out. Now, anybody know who the Pharisees and Sadducees are? Pharisees and Sadducees are the religious leaders of the day. They're considered the cream of the crop, the elite, and they are legalists to the hilt. You keep the law. You do what we say. We'll tell you how to live righteous for God kind of mentality, okay? So they're coming out. And he said to them, as all warm greetings in any healthy atmosphere should be, you brood of vipers. Please don't ever welcome somebody like that in our church. Please don't, dude. Welcome to Grace Bible Church, you brood of vipers. We're so glad you're here. Let's get you visitors back. Wow. Now watch this. Here's what's interesting. Think about what he's saying. Pay attention. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You know what that tells you? John didn't tell them. The wrath is coming and they didn't hear it from John. Right? He's out there preaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now pause for a second because immediately you have a connection between wrath and the kingdom. There's something that takes place with wrath transpiring and the kingdom arriving. How do we know that? Because the very first thing he's telling them before he tells them about the kingdom coming is repent. Pretty strong message. Now again, we're trying to examine what in the world does this mean? But we're seeing the association unfold. We're seeing it 
come about, come alive. Notice what he says here. Therefore, when I see a therefore, you ask what that's there for, but I give it a heavy underline like four because he's kicking it back. Why? From what he just said, who warned you legalist, good for nothing, self-righteous bunch of guys to come out here and try to avoid the wrath of God in relation to the kingdom? Who did that? They come out. He doesn't get an answer from them. Therefore, look what he says. Bear fruit. Now watch this. In keeping with repentance. Here's what this tells you. This is not oops, fruit bearing. If the idea of the word repentance has any sort of connection in itself of bearing fruit, that is not what that word means. How do we know that? Because fruit bearing is a result of repentance. If the lexicons are correct, and you recognize that you were wrong in thinking about something, and you were sinful in a situation, wouldn't it make sense that your mind would have to be convinced otherwise before you had actions that fell into play? Wouldn't that make sense? It only makes sense. Or is it that they've got to have some sort of hyper-emotional, sorrowful situation over here in order to begin bearing fruit for repentance? Now understand what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that emotion couldn't be a result of repentance. What I'm telling you is that emotional sorrow, remorse, and regret is not part and parcel of the word repentance because it will greatly influence the way that you read the scriptures. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, here's their excuse. We have Abraham for our father. That means my daddy's 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 daddy makes me okay. He's saying your ancestry is worth zilch. You can't simply say my family tree gets me in. Jews were huge on heritage, okay? So heritage equals nothing, okay? For causal conjunction, kick it back. I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. That's not what he's looking for. My message is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Wrath is involved, and you need to be bearing fruit in keeping with the fact that repentance has taken place. There should be an outflow of this. That happens. Excellent book. I encourage you to get a copy if you don't have it. When we did hermeneutics class, we didn't have time to get into it. And that's a shame. We need to come back to it. Charlie Bing, our good friend, he writes, we must keep the inward aspect of repentance distinct from the outward exhibit of conduct. Repentance is the root, but conduct may or may not be the fruit. Obviously, an inner change should result in an outward change. That would be natural and expected, but it is not automatic. How many times have you said, yeah, I know, that's wrong, and you went back and you did it anyway? See that? You repented of the situation if it's a change of mind, but boy, getting the body to conform and obey to that new way of thinking, that takes time. It takes the Holy Spirit making that a reality in your life because he works from the inside out, not the outside in. So an obvious question might be, what does it look like to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Matthew doesn't tell us, but we have a gift from God that you might not be aware of. And it's called synoptic 
gospels. Are we familiar with the word synoptic gospels? I came to teach today, so we're going to learn a lot of new things. Synoptics mean that many of the events that go on in the gospel accounts actually interlock and coincide with one another. You're seeing two or three perspectives of an event that's taking place. And what you find is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have about 88 to 93%, depending on how you look at it, of events that occur the same way. So you can see a multifaceted view of it. It's like having three different cameras on the same situation. John, John is out there, man. He was on some kind of crazy trip. I don't know, okay? I think there's only about 10% of stuff that coincides with the synoptics, okay? He had a different thing he was presenting about Jesus. True nonetheless, but just different. We have another account going on. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Luke 3. Turn over to Luke. Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 10. Now, real quick, I've got a slide here It's going to tell you. Verses 1 through 9 in Luke are going to match parallel with what we're just reading now in the Matthew 3 section. So on your own, you can do a study of that. Take a look at it. I encourage you throughout this week, study it out and see how Luke describes the situation. But in Luke 3, look at verse 10. And the crowds were questioning him, the hen is JTB, okay, John the Baptist, saying, then what shall we do? Bearing fruits and keeping with repentance. Remember, his message in Luke is the same as it is in Matthew. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. Do you have resources that you can spare for some that don't have any? That takes a change of mind in order to elicit that kind of givingness in our lives. It's a good thing. It's what repentance looks like when it's fleshed out in obedience. How about the next one? Some of the tax collectors, right? Write this up there in your Bible. IRS. There you go. <laughs> also came to be baptized. Now remember what he said to the Pharisees and Sadducees when they did that. They said to him, teacher, what shall we do? Now here's the thing. Tax collectors. What humble guys. John's weird. And the chosen, they call him Creepy John. Some people got messed up about that. He's a weird dude. But notice they come and they humble themselves. Teacher, what shall we do? What can we do to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? And he said to them, collect no more than what you've been ordered to do. Handle your money well. Back then, they would collect what they wanted for Rome. And Rome said, you know what? You want to give yourself a bonus? Go for it. I don't care where you get it from. Don't do that anymore. If they mandated you to collect the tax, collect the tax. Stop there. Just get your pay from Rome. How about the next one? Some soldiers, military guys were questioning him and saying, and what about us? What shall we do? Notice they're constantly emphasizing the action that comes from repentance taking place. And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force. Everybody see that money has got a pretty good bearing on what happens with a mind that is repentant? Or accuse anyone falsely because there were always false charges somewhere. Be content with your wages. Wages, uh, where's it at? It's over here. Money, man, that looks terrible. Can't erase that. There you go. Wages, money. Did I tell you guys the back of this erases? So crazy. Anyway, moving on. Here's what he says. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, notice it's judgment. Judgment is on the horizon. The lumberjack has got his axe out. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Forgive me, we went back to Matthew 3. 
But that's where that's at. What did we see as far as is, is bearing fruits and keeping with repentance? How are you handling your life? That's got to be done differently. If you have an abundance, share it with somebody. If somebody needs food, give it to them. If you've changed your mind about your life situation on this, this is what it looks like to be obedient to that situation. Be content with your wages and stop swindling other people. Be a fair-minded business person. Back to Matthew 3.10. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Here's what this is. Judgment. Judgment is involved. And where would we see that from our previous understanding? It's this word. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The wrath of God. Every tree that does not bear good fruit. Good fruit how? Good fruit in keeping with repentance. Does everybody see that? Keep the text consistent. Is cut down and thrown into the fire. Oh my gosh, is that hell? Is it hell? Is it the lake of fire? You study it, you tell me. Notice the next one. Ask for me. Right? Our good friend JTB. I baptize you with water. Watch this. What? John the Baptist. Thus his middle name, Baptist is his last name. It's like Jesus' last name is Christ. How do you guys not know this? I don't even sure. Just kidding. As for me, I baptize you with water. Now watch this, because I want you to pay attention to what exactly he's doing. We're going to see this. Water for, here's the reason. Here's our word again. Repentance. But he, Jesus, he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with, number one, the Holy Spirit. Number two, fire. And I would say it depends on where you stand with Him. You will either be immersed in the Holy Spirit or you will be immersed in fire. But His ministry is going to dictate or unfold what that looks like. Now, the last verse of this part. His winnowing fork is in His hand. Everybody get the imagery, okay? Here. Yeah. There it is. Winnowing fork. Everybody see that? Now everybody know how does everybody know how a first century threshing floor is set up? Okay, let me rephrase it for refresh in case you don't. The first century threshing floor is going to have a landing that's slightly elevated, okay? Usually there's going to be a ramp for people to walk up to go. And it's the inside of this house, uh, this structure that's going to have two sliding doors it's going to go on. And the benefit of this of gathering all your weed and putting it here in a pile on the floor was that you could open up this door and open up this door just like you do with your windows throughout your house and it creates what creates a draft creates a breeze immediately then you put in the winnowing fork that's going to stab that wheat and you throw it up in the air and everything that is considered useless worthless dusty they call it chaff is all blown out the window and it's gone because it's good for nothing and the pure wheat comes back down to the floor and you do that enough times and you got your own cauldron that you're essentially making you can strain your spaghetti right out that way, okay? It's the same type of idea, only first century usage. So notice, this is pretty interesting imagery that John wants to draw that everybody could relate to. The winnowing fork is in his hand, which means he is ready, and he will thoroughly clear the, fr- the threshing floor. Whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. Keeps going until all the chaff is gone. It's a purification thing. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Does that tell you what the fire is? 
Oh, yeah. And what is that? Don't call it hell. Hell is a temporary holding place until the final judgment of the lake of fire. It is the lake of fire. Now, if you're to look at something like this, you work through it, work through the text. You see here, like I told you before, Luke 3, 1 through 9 is a parallel passage. Take your sheet home, maybe turn it over and start writing out these nine verses. That'll take a long time. Bible study does. Print it out. Get a free Bible program. It doesn't matter. Don't make excuses for not being in the text, okay? And you will see, you can compare these two side by side. Now, if we were to flip to another one, and if you want to take your Bible and go there, if you were to go to Matthew 4, you would see that when Jesus shows up on the scene, he's got a very familiar message that he wants to say, and I want you to mark it because it's important. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, what? Repent for... The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same message? Same message. Now, if we were to compare this point going on with Mark's gospel, and you can look at this later. I'm just trying to get you started in this, okay? John the Baptist, the guy we're familiar with all of a sudden, appeared in the wilderness. We know that he was south in Judea. You're comparing scripture with scripture. He's preaching a baptism of, there's our word, repentance for Uh Uh-oh, look at this. It wasn't just that they were coming up and confessing sins. Forgiveness of sins. Can John the Baptist forgive sins? What in the world does the text mean by that? Well, let's look one step further. And all the country of Judea, south, was going out to him. All the people of Jerusalem, the city that was south, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. Same parallel stuff. And here it is again. They were confessing their sins. Does confessing of sins remove sins? Kind of on the fence about that, aren't we? Now remember, these people are in a law dispensation. Jesus hasn't died on the cross, been buried, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven. That hasn't happened yet. It's the Old Testament dispensation of the law that's taken place. So anytime Israel would come to terms, humble themselves, and confess their sins before the Lord, what would the Lord do at that point? And the Lord, I mean God, not Jesus. He's not really shown up on the scene yet. Will he remove those sins? Will he forgive those sins from them? If they come to him and confess it? He will. So notice this has to do with the fellowship situation of needing to confess their sins. Now, What in the world is going on that he's baptizing people and sins are getting confessed and forgiven and all this crazy stuff's going on? Take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts 19. We'll finish here. Acts chapter 19. Thank you for being patient. I'm trying to get us started. Sometimes beginning something is a little hard to get the ball rolling. Anytime that you can compare Scripture with Scripture... Scripture is the best commentary on Scripture. So if you can dig through, maybe some of your marginal notes will bring this up. Sometimes we do need to dig into a commentary and filter out the subjective information and get down with the objective information and find this. But a very interesting thing occurs. Notice, this is Paul and his missionary journeys. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, we know that place, right? We spent a lot of time there. Paul passed through the upper country and came to This is where we're going next after this, Ephesus. And what did he find? Now watch this. He found some disciples. You do a word study on disciple, it means somebody who is a follower. 
Somebody who is a pupil of some sort under the teaching of somebody. And he, Paul, said to them, good question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now here's what I love. Number one, the Holy Spirit is the defining marker of a brand new dispensation happening. And what that's known as is the church age dispensation, okay? When the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2, it birthed a brand new thing called the church. Nothing like that had ever happened before, and now the Holy Spirit is indwelling every believer in Christ. Big deal. Notice that this is the only condition for it. That's really important, belief. And they said to him, no. Good grief, Paul's dealing with a bunch of Holy Spiritless people, right? We have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Never heard of the guy. Don't even know about him. Okay? Interesting place to be. Look at this. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? Was baptism pretty important back then? Yeah, it was for them in the first century. Didn't save you. Don't make that mistake. There's nothing of merit in that situation. But boy, it was an important thing for them to be involved in. And they said, Into John's baptism. John who? We'll do this one just for Brenda, right? Mr. JTB. John the Baptist baptism. Paul has come upon in Ephesus some guys who were baptized by John the Baptist and they said, hey, what about the Holy Spirit? They're like, "Mm, who's that? Here it is. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of, what's the word? Repentance. That's important. Now watch what repentance is not from comparing Scripture with Scripture. Telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is Jesus. So whatever this baptism of repentance for confession of sin is, is not the same as believing in Christ. In fact, what he's telling them here is that repentance, this baptism of repentance, they go down, they come up, they confess their sins. By confessing sins, just like we do in a fellowship situation, we employ 1 John 1, 9 and confess our sins. It gets that out of the way. Our personal offenses against God is out of the way now so that we can experience fellowship with Him more freely. Guess what? The concept is the same here. They were confessing, they're being baptized, knowing that the kingdom of God was on its way, knowing that the end was near, that the wrath of God was going to come on, and they confess their sins to get it out of the way. Why? Make straight the paths of the Lord. Confessing your sins is a way to get the sin baggage out of the way so that you can see Jesus clearly. That's what it boils down to. So when they were repenting, when they were changing their minds about this situation, and then they would bear fruits in keeping with the fact that the kingdom is coming, and that whatever they were involved in was really wrong, and they needed to redo their lifestyle, it had to start with a change of thinking. Why? So that when Jesus shows up, they wouldn't miss him. Now here's the crazy thing. Did anybody miss Jesus? These guys did. There's 12 of them. And they missed Christ. Maybe they showed up for a while, got baptized by John, said, man, this is great. They went back to Ephesus and they didn't know about what went on there, possibly. But for such a time as this, Paul then explains to them about Jesus. They believe and are saved. And then he baptizes them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So what should we pull out of this first understanding? Number one, we've got to be in the Word of God. We have got to open it up. We've got to take the time to get out the pen, digital or otherwise. 
and mess with the text and get involved in it and get our minds wrapped around what does the Bible tell me how I should understand repentance or salvation or justification or even Jesus or the Holy Spirit or God. It doesn't matter. The Bible needs to be the authority of how we do that. And so my hopes through this Reclaiming Repentance series is to reclaim the word repentance from what theologians and denominations have done to it and simply ask the question, can we bring it back to the Bible so that we can understand the Bible? And so this is going to be a long-form study series. We good? Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so thankful for our time together. I'm so thankful for your grace on our lives. I'm so thankful, God, that the Word of God gives us wisdom for how to understand you. And Lord, if we would just take the time, we would just invest ourselves in the text. God, what wonderful things you could show us. Lord, I pray that Sunday is not lost on this subject, but we would go home. We would be in the word. We'd begin studying out repentance for ourselves and trying to understand all the various passages that deal with this subject. Give us mercy in this. Illuminate the Spirit's work to our understanding, Lord, that the Word of God would be so impressed upon our hearts that we would have a fresh fire for you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.